You're listening to FMGRadio.com. Welcome to Generation Reinvention, how baby boomers are changing the future, with your host, Brent Green. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us. We've talked before about LOHAS, an acronym that stands for Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. Last June, I attended the LOHAS Forum in Boulder, an annual conference focused on the natural products and sustainability industries. Well, unexpected things happen at the forum, and last time was no exception. After bounding onto a general session stage, the keynote speaker disrobed, literally and figuratively, stripping off his business suit to reveal a runner's outfit underneath. He then shared compelling stories about the trials of being a leader, CEO, and the wisdom he's gained. I'm honored to have this disrobing speaker as our guest today. Welcome, Chip Conley. Thank you, Brent. I appreciate being with you. And, um, you know, thank God this is not filmed right now because I might be disrobing (laughs) right now in front of you. Well, I'm sure our audience wouldn't mind, but let me give them a little bit of background. In 1987, at age 26, Chip Conley started Joie de Vivre, a hospitality company based in San Francisco. He began by transforming a squalid 1950s Tenderloin District Motel into Phoenix Hotel, a renowned rock and roll destination catering to celebrities such as David Bowie, Linda Ronstadt, and Nirvana. JDV then expanded into a collection of nearly 40 award-winning hotels, restaurants, and spas with more than 3,000 employees and with each property conveying a unique personality often influenced by thematically popular magazines. After 24 years as JDV's CEO, Chip is now a strategic advisor to the company he founded and a successful author and international speaker for organizations from TED to Pixar to Google and beyond. He is author of several best-selling business books. His most recent New York Times bestseller is entitled Emotional Equations, Simple Truths for Creating Happiness Plus Success. He is also an ambassador for an important new movement in business called Conscious Capitalism, joining other visionaries such as John Mackey, founder of Whole Foods. So again, Chip Conley, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Brent, and I look forward to diving deep with you. All right, and I'd like to start with Joie de Vivre. Um, How did you find the courage to take so many risks at such an early age by transforming this Tenderloin District dive into a truly inspiring hotel? Well, you know, uh, when you are 26 years old, you don't know what you don't know. (laughs) And frankly, taking a risk at 26 is much easier than taking it at 36 or 46 when you have maybe family or a home, a mortgage, etc. So I was at an age where I was ready to to dive in and, and, and to try being an entrepreneur. I had gone to Stanford Business School and I had gone to work for a commercial real estate developer out of business school and I really didn't like it. I think all of us in our work have one of three relationships with our work. It's either a job, a career, or a calling. And in this case, what I thought was going to be a calling turned out to be a job with this company. And about two years after, you know, into my time in that real estate development company, I I looked at a different form of real estate, uh, which is hotels, that really um, spoke to me. I like the fact that in the hotel business, if we get our job right, 
we make people feel good. And so I decided to call the company Joie de Vivre, which means joy of life, um, because that's our mission statement. There are very few companies in the world whose mission statement is also the name of the company. And for me, I, that was you know a, a call to action for all of us on my team. And we ended up growing and becoming the second largest boutique hotelier in the U.S. So it's Not a fun bad. story. Great for starting. As a matter of fact, I was in the hotel business. I was head of marketing for a resort hotel called the Broadmoor. And oh, I yeah. wish I met you in the early 80s because I was much more interested in creating a rock and roll environment for the Broadmoor. But that wouldn't go over very big with Not that. Not there. I've been there. I've actually stayed there and given a speech there. So I understand exactly. Well, um, what? why rock and roll? Why did that influence your conceptualization of this first hotel in your portfolio? Well, the first hotel was a no-tell motel, which basically means it was <laughs> it was it was uh, an hourly motel in the inner city of San Francisco, a place called the Tenderloin, and um, you know, and it was in bad shape. Uh, it was in bankruptcy. So, if you really think about it, you you go after your audience, the audience that's going to um, really appreciate what you're going to create, and. It, there were not that, that many audiences out there of, of, of people coming to San Francisco who would like to stay at a broken-down motel in, in the inner city. Now, we did gussy it up, and we cosmetically uh, upgraded some things, but um, we felt like musicians, and especially rock and roll bands and other other kinds of bands uh, and entertainers would be a good fit because they sort of like the edgy na- nature of the neighborhood and and uh, so we created a very cool, sort of artistically hip hotel. And, um, you know, the Phoenix within a year became sort of the, the rock and roll hotel of San Francisco and, and, and gained that reputation. You know, the rock and roll, is, as I've described it in one of my books, is kind of the red thread that connects our generation from Florida to Alaska. We grew up on rock and roll. And so that, of course, fascinates me, and I'm sure it fascinates quite a few of our listeners. What was, uh, can you think of one of the coolest rock and roll experiences you actually had in your own hotel, given the nature of your guest list? Oh, I mean, it was just usually having people run into each other. I mean, just like, you know, having the Doobie Brothers were a band that was sort of on the on the fall. You know, they were, they were, they had, their best days were behind them, and they were staying at the hotel the same time that MC Hammer, when he was in at, 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 on his rise, was staying in the hotel. And I saw MC Hammer and the Doobie Brothers just sort of like talking by the pool and then starting to actually do a little music by the pool. That's not, and, and MC Hammer and Doobie, the Doobie Brothers don't necessarily feel like you know, <laughs> they're groups that would necessarily see each other all that often. And uh, Or, you know, there was... There are so many times where I saw this crossroads for creative people, and the the courtyard of the hotel, which is has a swimming pool and, and like a little sculpture garden, is is sort of the place where people would meet and and um, you know connect with each other. Yeah, I can just imagine the energy in the Doobie Brothers. Michael McDonald, he uh, just uh, he was just playing in Denver a few weeks ago, so mm-hmm. still a relevant artist. But I get your point about MC Hammer. Um, well. In a nutshell, the, if I understand this correctly, I've not stayed at the uh, Phoenix Hotel, but I've had the pleasure of staying at Hotel Kabuki, where I actually met you, and you were a guest speaker, one of my groups, and that's based on kind of a Japanese theme. Yeah. Uh, but what I, I think you mentioned that you try to you tried to seek out magazine personalities like the New Yorker or Wired to influence each of the. JDV hotels. Can you kind of expand upon that thought? 
Yeah, well, what I learned in that first hotel was it was very difficult to get everybody on the same page. Our, you know, the first meeting we had talking about what was this funky no-tell motel going to become when, when we finished the renovation. And so at the end of the first meeting, which was a, sort of a, a debacle of a meeting, it didn't go well, I said, bring, bring a magazine with you to the next meeting that you think defines the personality of this hotel. And what I didn't think about much, but it just sort of came naturally, was that, in fact, boutique hotels and magazines have a lot in common. They're very niche-oriented and very lifestyle-oriented. And so, um, it, as it turns out, it was very, uh, you know, a stroke of luck because at the next meeting, six of the eight people who came to the meeting brought Rolling Stone magazine with, it, with them. And so we came up with five adjectives that define Rolling Stone, which helped uh, all of us to have some clarity, uh, almost like a, a, a checklist of here's, you know, we want a hotel that's funky, irreverent, adventurous, cool, and young at heart. Well, we learned, and it was a great holistic method of creating an interesting hotel, but ultimately what we learned over time is that the people who fell in love with the hotel are people who would use those five adjectives to describe themselves. So the hotel was like a, an a mirror for the identity of the, the guests or the aspirational identity. And so I call this identity refreshment. And, uh, yeah, it was very, very fortunate that um, – you know, we were able to find that that sort of paradigm or that method of creating each of our hotels, and it's allowed us to create some some really award a lot of award-winning hotels based upon that method. Next time in I'm in San Francisco, I will stay at the Phoenix and I'll wear my black leather pants. I can promise. <laughs> you'll be you'll be appropriate in that crowd. <laughs> well, I think you kind of just touched upon this, but maybe you can elaborate a little further. What is your idealization of the guest experience? Uh, in each of the hotels, what what are you seeking for the guests? You talked about identity refreshment. Beyond that, what are you hoping people find and experience? Well, I I, th I think more than anything, what I I want us to be able to do is to create an experience where someone has a sense that they're in their perfect habitat. Um, you know, when you when it's not that we want people. I I love the fact that we're providing great service and people are delighted and surprised by the quality of the service and the attentiveness and the wow factor, all of that's important. But I, I think, you know, it's a little cliche when people just say, well, you know, we're a hotel, you know, we just provide extraordinary service. Well, I, from my perspective, there needs to be something even behind that extraordinary service. And for us, the, what's behind that is really understanding what I call the higher needs of our customers. And it's really based upon Abraham Maslow's theory of um, the hierarchy of needs, uh, which he came up with 50 or 60 years ago, uh, predicated on the idea that there are some basic needs we have in life, like you know physiological needs, and then we have some up at the top of his hierarchy of needs uh, theory, this, this idea of, of self-actualization, of being all you can be. If we can create a hotel where someone feels like they can be all they can be in, in the context of this hotel, We've created much more than just a, a, an accommodations or a lodging ex or, a, or a hotel experience. We've created something that is profound and memorable um, and has deeply touched the person that, you know, who's our guest. And that's what we try to do. That's a powerful idea, uh, particularly considering when you began the process, which was in the late 1980s, I believe. Is that about the time frame? We're talking uh, 1987 was when we started. Yep. Okay. So, I mean, obviously, uh, Maslow's theories and thoughts about human uh, psychological development had been around for a while, but to look at the hotel experience as a transformative experience was revolutionary and still is. I mean, uh, very few 
properties truly carry that idea forward. Yeah. Um, before we move on, just in a sense, I know that you are now uh, a strategic advisor. You've put down your uh, hat as the CEO, but what is your hope for the future of the uh, fantastic uh, chain of boutique hotels that you started? Well, I, you know, you always want uh, your children to grow up and, and have a great life because that creates a legacy. But um, that that's still my sense with the company and with the, the hotels we've created. Uh, I, I've also really looked at it not just as a great way to, you know, uh, be a, a role model for other hotel companies, but maybe just a role model in general. And that's part of the reason I started writing books because I, I would love Joie de Vivre to be a cultural role, role model. I think culture is the most valuable intangible in most organizations. And unfortunately, there aren't enough companies out there that we can point to as that are role models for culture. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited by the fact that the company continues to grow. Uh, it's been a, it's been a two years since I was CEO, and there's been some, you know, twists and turns in the process. But, uh, um, you know, it, it, they, I feel in, that the company's in good hands. Excellent. And, of course, we'll be interested to see how the company evolves as those of us who appreciate the fine hotels that uh, your collection represents when we return. Um, and we'll take a short break, but when we come back, uh, if you think you're busy, wait till you see what Chip Conley does when he's not running, you know, 35 to 40 hotels. Uh, he writes books, and these books are about the culture and the business opportunities that are before us. So stick around. We're coming right back with Chip Conley. You're listening to the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is, have fun, make money, do good. We provide platforms to individuals who have a cause, message, or information that they would like to share with the world. If you'd like to join the FMG family and have your own radio show, please call us at 1-800-470-4982. That's 1-800-470-4982. We look forward to hearing from you. One of my challenges when planning to have an interview with Chip Conley was how to focus, uh, simply because there's such breadth to what he does and gets involved in. And he has several books. Uh, we're going to spend more time on his most recent book than the other two I would like to mention and have us have a little conversation about. But I think it's important for you, our listeners, to get a perspective. The first book that I uh, took a look at and found interesting in its breadth and uh, its conceptualization is The Rebel Rules, Daring to Be Yourself in Business. Well, first of all, you kind of described um, a rebel as somebody who makes a difference in the long run and are those with integrity. And you define integrity in a very practical way. And I quote you, knowing what to do, saying you are doing it, and then doing it. So as a business principal, could you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I, it's interesting. There's a, a book that was written called um, by the guys who wrote the book, The Leadership Challenge. Uh, and they did a follow-up book. And in, in that book, I think it was called Credibility. Uh, and they're able to show, based upon a survey that was done of leaders, business leaders around the world, uh, and the people who work with them, that the the number one quality that people want from their leadership is honesty, trustworthiness, and integrity. And and it's sort of foundational. I mean, it's, the truth is that when you don't have that, no matter how smart the person is, no matter 
how you know charismatic they are if you don't have that sense of trustworthiness around integrity at the base then um it's all meaningless so uh how we show up i, I think there's really these three qualities um it's about being authentic it's about actually having a certain invisibility um and then it's about being reliable and being authentic and reliable i think people can get that when it comes to um integrity the invisibility just means that um when someone has uh, is willing to do things without and, and 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 doing it without having to get credit for it, doing it because it's the right thing to do, not doing it because you know the TV cameras are on or because the whole company's watching or because they know that they're going to go trumpet all their you know their the great things they did to everybody else. When they do it just because it's the right thing to do, that that really has a lot to do with integrity I, I, from my perspective. That's a incredible way of describing integrity. Now I imagine you haven't been approached on this book in this way, but let me just throw this out and see what your sure. reaction might be. I think you're aware that rebelliousness is very much a signature trait of the boomer generation, and you're on the younger side of the boomer generation, where I tend to be That's a little right. bit on the older side, but you're still a, technically a part of the generation. And this show has included a number of individuals who were clearly rebellious in their early years and their careers, such I'm sure you know Steve Demos, who founder, founded Silk Milk, uh, as an example, somebody that just went the other way and tried something nobody else was trying. So did that ger- generational heritage have some influence on this book, this Rebel Rules, do you think? You know, it's interesting. That's a great question. I, I think it, I think it's the I'm sort of at that intersection of of the baby boomers and then the Gen Xers. I'm I was born in 1960, and the, I think the Gen Xers really sort of started to be born in, uh, right around when uh, 63 or so, 63, 64, around Kennedy's death. Right. Um, I, it feels as I wrote the Rebel Rules uh, when I was 39 or 40 years old, about 40 years old. And my intent was to really speak to the fact that when I was in business school, uh, at that point it was 15 years earlier, no one ever would have gone to business school and said, I want to be a rebel when I grow up. (laughs) The only rebel that we sort of knew back in the 1970s or 80s was Lee Iacocca, um, the former CEO of Chrysler. And most business people were just maintenance. They would like the, the best leaders were ones who could maintain the competitive edge. And there was just much less of a competitive environment where there's disruptive technologies and all kinds of um, of change going on in the world. Uh, new competitors showing up every year. Uh, starting in the in the dot com boom in the mid 1990s, what we saw is a new era of people getting into business. Some of them are social entrepreneurs. Some of them are you know, people who had been involved in politics or government previously. Some of them were psychologists. Some of them were a variety of people who said, you know what, I want to go and you know, create something that's going to make a difference in the world. And so uh, I wrote the book, The Rebel Rules, because what I saw is this whole new generation of rebels uh, becoming the, the people we most in, were enamored with in, in business. And some of them were, were baby boomers like Steve Jobs, and some of them were you know, younger than that, you know, uh, and, and in fact, if you look at who started the dot-com boom companies, it was lots and lots of people who are younger than me, lots of Gen Xers. Uh, right. And what we've seen since then is, is it's just it's just continued. I think that people most admire uh, business leaders who have a bit of a rebellious streak in them, the, the Richard Bransons of the world or the Anita Roddick uh, who started Body Shop long ago. Oh, yes. So, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm encouraged by the fact that I guess I was, you know, talking about a trend that has discontinued since then. 
Yes. And actually, many people that end up showing up at the LOHAS Forum, where you were the keynote speaker this last year, are that uh, of that nature. They've, they've gone their own way. They've tried new things, and they've taught us how business can transform, which is a perfect little segue into your next book I'd like to uh, touch upon, and that's Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. And you mentioned Abraham Maslow, who I studied when I was, I studied to be a humanistic psychologist back in my education. And so he was very much an important uh, thought leader to me. Um, Can you kind of uh, convey the story of how you came about discovering him and applying his principles to business? Yeah, I, you know, I was, I mentioned the dot-com boom a few minutes ago about, you know, that the rebel, rule, the rebel Rules was sort of coming through that time. Well, what happened as that book, The Rebel Rules, came out is all of a sudden the dot-com boom became a bust. And my company, at that point, we were the largest hotelier in the San Francisco Bay Area. We had 20 hotels around the Bay Area and nothing outside the Bay Area. And the Bay Area went through the largest percentage revenue drop in the history of American hotels since World War II, other than by natural disaster. Um, so we were in a lot of trouble. And I ended up in a local bookstore looking for a business book. And within five minutes, I ended up in the self-help section of the bookstore. Yeah. And in the self-help section, I found some Maslow books. And I had taken a, a class in college, learned about Maslow. And I, was, I always liked his theory, which is really a theory about best practices practices of the human condition as opposed to worst practices. And uh, from there, I decided that I would um, study Maslow again, um, not necessarily with any clarity about how it was going to affect my leadership or the company. But as I read his Hierarchy of Needs and, and his books, I I just started thinking, wow, this if, if, if humans can be self-actualized, what if you put together a collection of humans who are, self, who are self-actualized? You could create a self-actualized company. And that's what we did. And um, amazingly, using Maslow's hierarchy of needs, his five-level pyramid, turning it into a three-level pyramid, and then applying that three-level, uh, what I call the transformation pyramid, to employees, customers, and investors, we ended up tripling in size in a time when, frankly, most of our you know our competitors in the Bay Area were just barely surviving and, and really shrinking in size. Well, this book has is rich in thought and depth, and um, you know I, I could spend an entire hour just discussing this single book with you, which unfortunately we don't have time to do. And I encourage our listeners to really check out this book because it's revolutionary thinking, and it provides some great perspective. Um, but let me ask you this specific question because it's one that occurred to me uh, as I was looking at the book, and that is. Um, I can understand how a a boutique hotel company with the kind of vision you've already described can create peak experiences for your guests. I mean, running into the Rolling Stones in one of your hotels would be truly a peak experience. (laughs) (laughs) But how do you create peak experiences for employees? Well, the 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 employee pyramid is based upon again uh, the the transformation pyramid has three levels. If I translate. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy needs into a three-level paradigm and pyramid. It would be survival, and then above that, succeed, and then at the peak of the pyramid is transform. So if you apply survival, succeed, transform to the employee experience, it would be money at the base of the pyramid, recognition in the middle, and meaning at the top. And what that basically means is that you know when you when you have an employee population and, and any individual employee. 
they need to make sure that their compensation needs and their job security is, is, is well cared for before they can actually move up the pyramid to be focused on recognition, which is, which is what makes them feel successful. But the best companies out there help their employees move from that sense of money and recognition, which are external motivators, to the sense of meaning. And when you're actually doing your work and you feel like you have great meaning in what you do and in what the company does, uh, what it leads to is people having a sense of a calling in their work. And great companies move people from job to career to calling. And uh, great companies have leadership systems in place to be able to, to do that. And, and that's what we did. And what does that mean? That means <clears throat> for our housekeeping staff, <clears throat> excuse me, for our housekeeping staff, we really looked at what is it that gives them a sense of meaning. We realized it was doing potlucks once, once a month where they brought in each each housekeeper would bring in the food from the, their uh, their native country because 95% of them uh, did not grow up in the United States. Um, for the front desk staff, <clears throat> having a sense of meaning was having a little host profile uh, at the front desk. So when someone comes there and actually checks in, there's a little profile that talks about who the person is behind. So the person behind the front desk is not just some transactional person who's just checking you in and checking you out, but it says who they are, where they're from, what they love about San Francisco or Los Angeles or Chicago or wherever they were located you know, within our company, um, and you know what are the hidden treasures of the town, and what are the things that that the person shouldn't waste their time on in their town. So it gives people the sense that they're on stage, and that gives a person a sense of meaning because they're instead of just being a transactional, uh, you know, assembly line producer of you know checking in and checking out. So as it turns out, we we grew the company grew and and did very well partly because we really focused on the higher needs of our employees. In the context of the motel that you took over and the tenderloin, uh, one often thinks of stockholders as slam bam, thank you, ma'am. Where's the money? So how how do you instill peak experiences in stockholders, which you know universally been, I suppose, stereotyped or characterized of how are you doing this week? performance-wise yeah. with the numbers. So how do you do that with stockholders? Well, applying Maslow's hierarchy of needs to employees and customers was easy. Employing it to investors was a little more difficult because I first had to come to the conclusion that investors are, in fact, human. Um, <laughs> but they are, and they have survival needs, and they have succeed needs, and they have transformational needs. So you know, the survival need for investors is making sure that you're on the same page. The company and the investors have the same business plan, same definition of success, um, and that's sort of what, what I call transactional alignment. The middle of that pyramid, the relationship alignment, uh, is when uh, when you create a, we create a relationship that's beyond the transaction. If you are just an investor in a company uh, and it, all it is is about the transaction, and you don't really care about the relationship. It's like being on a New York subway with a bunch of people who are going to actually get on and then get off. And the level of friendliness usually isn't very very good because it's so you know it's like you know that you're only going to be with that person for a little while, and it's all about the transaction of getting from one stop to the next. But when you actually have a sense that you're going to be on that train <laughs> for hours or days or years, you create a different kind of relationship. And relationship alignment is, is frankly what Warren Buffett does in his companies that he invests in. He, he focuses less on the transaction and the business plan and more on the people and how mm-hmm. we create a great relationship with people that we trust and we just know are very good at what they do. And then at the top of that pyramid, the transformational investor, the investor who feels like they're self-actualized by investing, which is, which is possible in the world, um, that investor has a sense of legacy. 
and pride of ownership because by investing in that company, that company is making good in the world in some way. And so, you know, ideally that's who you want as your investors. But, you know, at first you have to sometimes get the, the bottom levels of the pyramid right before <laughs> someone gets to that stage. True, but also, you know, I, it, in line with that thinking, of course, there's a new type of investor that is socially conscious, wants yep. to make money, but also wants to do good in the world. And obviously that is how you've addressed that and peak. Well, again, in tune with the direction I like to try to move this program, uh, considering that we're talking about generation reinvention, the baby boomers and how they're changing the future. Uh, we met, you and I met, it was just a brief handshake, but you were a speaker at a group organized by one of my mentors, David Wolf, who's the author of Ageless Marketing. And uh, he also landed on Maslow from the perspective of aging. And he argued that ascendance to the peak of the pyramid is related to emotional and psychological growth across the lifespan. And as post-50 adults, we focus more on being than merely becoming. And I think there's something in there relative to what you've described. I wonder if you could share your reactions uh, or immediate thoughts to the relationship between self-actualization and aging, and it might even relate to your own journey as a person. I think that self-actualization, uh, Abe Maslow died when he was 19, in 1970 at age 62. And it's unfortunate because the 1970s became the me decade. And in many ways, people thought self-actualization was about self-absorption, and, and it really is not. And later in his life, he really talked about self-actualization being self-transcendence. And I do think that's what happens later in life. Later in life, self-actualization, you are less focused on your own self. You're focused on your legacy, and you're focused on how you influence others and how you make a difference out there in the world you know, for the time that, when you're no longer around. And so I do think uh, when it comes to the aging process, People, people move from self-actualization to almost social actualization. And the social actualization is focused more on not just yourself, but it's the people who surround you and how are you going to affect them. That's a fantastic way to summarize it, and thank you for that. And we're going to take another break, and my time schedule is slipping a little bit here, ambitious because I'm, I've got a very ambitious guest. But when we come back, we're going to talk about emotional equations which is Chip Conley's newest book, and then we'll have some conversation about conscious capitalism, which it's important uh, for all of us to understand what's happening. We'll be right back. You're listening to the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is have fun, make money, do good. We provide platforms to individuals who have a cause, message, or information that they would like to share with the world. If you'd like to join the FMG family and have your own radio show, please call us at one 800 Four seven zero four nine eight two. That's one eight hundred four seven zero four nine eight two. We look forward to hearing from you. When I heard Chip Conley speak at the last Lojas Forum, I had the good fortune of making notes, and he said something that caught my attention, and I copied down. And now I'm going to ask a little bit more about that quote. He said that. What I've learned in 25 years of being a CEO, from a startup to growing into a big company, is that we as leaders are the emotional thermostats of the groups that we lead. Emotional thermostats. What what are we talking about here? Well, <laughs> if you think about think about going into a room 
uh, and you, you're entering a room and everybody in the room is laughing or everybody in the room is, is you know, having a good time. Uh, and, you know, then thinking about going into a room where everybody's petrified uh, and, uh, or, or angry. And what we know is that you know, I think of organizations being like ponds. So, you know, the temperature in a pond, you know, it affects the whole pond. It doesn't, you know, there's, it's not like, you know, if one part of the pond is at 60 degrees, another part of the pond is 90 degrees. Now, it, it has a contagious nature, you know, uh, and in walking into the room, you know, you feel the temperature. Well, what we don't recognize or what we didn't recognize 10 years ago, but now we do, and there's a lot of great books that have been written about it, is that our emotions are contagious and the emotions of the leader are under the microscope. So they are even more contagious. So um, how, the, um, how a leader is setting their own emotional thermostat, if it's high, meaning you know, they're feeling good and they're just sort of they're really energized by their job, that actually has an impact on other people. Um, if it's low, on the other hand, and they're depressed with their job or they're feeling victimized by their job, that comes across as well. So, um, uh, you know, knowing that you're an emotional thermostat means you have to have a little bit more awareness about not just how you're feeling, but how it's coming across as well. And so you've taken that insight and other insights and wrapped it into a, your newest book, Emotional Equations, Simple Truths for Creating Happiness Plus Success. And I, to help our listeners understand, the math is fairly straightforward. It doesn't take a master's degree in math to follow the thinking here. I'm going to suggest a couple of your equations, and maybe you could elaborate on them. And beginning with probably the one you began with, um, and maybe there's a story behind that you can quickly share, despair equals suffering minus meeting. Yes, and I promise that all of the equations in the book are not depressing ones like this one. But okay. <laughs> I love I, this I, one. I, I, you know, I appreciate you asking about it because it's how I got started. Um, let me just say, my emotional thermostat during the dot-com boom and then the bust, and when, when I went through my peak period with Maslow, was very high. But my doc, my um, emotional temperature as a leader was not very good going going into this downturn in 2008. A lot of things were going wrong in my life. A lot of things were going wrong in the company, and um, I ended up getting reacquainted with uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, um, one of the most profound books ever written on meaning. And when I was at my lowest low, I uh, decided I wanted to sort of somehow distill the wisdom of that book into an equation. Not because I'm a math guy, I'm really not, but math is about relationships, it's the relationship of numbers. Um, and I thought, well, maybe it could be about math could be about the relationship of emotions as well. And the way this, the math on this particular equation works is as follows. So you got despair equals suffering minus meaning. Suffering. <clears throat> Let's focus on that part of the equation first. Suffering. When when you're going through a bad time, everything feels like it's suffering. If you're you know, you know in a mental prison, if you're you know in a bad job, if you're in a bad marriage. Whatever's going on, have it, have it tends to have a you, you've got a pair of glasses that is sort of a, a suffering pair of glasses. And if you're a Buddhist, uh, Buddha, the Buddhists believe that the first noble truth of Buddhism is that suffering is ever present. It's just always there. Once you get to a place where you can accept that suffering is a constant, it's always going to be there if you want to find it. <clears throat> but meaning is the variable. So it's like algebra, sacred algebra. If you increase the meaning and suffering is a constant, the despair goes down. Let me do the math. So 8 equals 10 minus 2, right? 8 equals 10 minus 2. Um, despair equals suffering minus meaning. 
if two, meaning, goes up to three, and 10 stays the same. So 10 minus three equals seven. So what I learned by, from this is that um, meaning and the sphere are inversely proportional. And the way I then made that real in my life is I started looking on a weekly basis. And I would do an emotional inventory once a week uh, during that difficult time to just say, well, God, what did I learn about vulnerability this week or resilience or courage or authenticity? And as a result, I started to feel better, even though the economic times got worse. And then I started teaching emotional equations to our leaders because what I saw was I was surrounded by suffering people. <laughs> and it worked. People felt better because they were understanding the ingredients for anxiety or for, this, for even happiness. Okay, well, let's quickly talk about a happy equation, which is basically happiness equals wanting what you have divided by having what you want. What did you mean by that? Happiness equation is one of my favorites because it allowed me to go to Bhutan to, st to actually study it. Um, people, many people may know that it's the first country in the world to actually create a gross national happiness index. <clears throat> and now there's 50 countries around the world that are actually doing the same. Um, I went to Bhutan to understand how are they creating the conditions for happiness to occur. Ask this way to uh, create happiness in your life uh, on, on virtually every continent across cultures is to experience and express gratitude. So the equation is happiness equals wanting what you have, which is like expressing, experiencing and expressing gratitude or practicing gratitude, um, divided by having what you want. So the, the numerator, which is the top of a division equation, makes sense. So happiness is all about practicing gratitude. What's in the denominator, the bottom of a division equation? Well, it's having what you want. And what does that mean? It means to actually go out and pursue that what, what, that you most are, are looking for in life, that you are striving for. Now, that was hard for me. I have to tell you, I'm a, I'm a type A entrepreneur, and so the idea that pursuing you know, your dreams is actually not good for your happiness sounded crazy. But the more I looked at it, the more I talked with social scientists about it, it's not pursuing your dreams that's the problem. It's actually pursuing gratification and focusing on always looking for the thing you don't have. You know, there, it's, the, it's the shiny object theory. We have a tendency to get distracted and de almost devalue what we have in our hand because there's something, the shiny object over there. And this happens in relationships, it happens with jobs, it happens with envy, it happens with all kinds of things. And so it's not that uh, pursuing things is a bad thing. In fact, it can create success in life. But for many of us, we think that by pursuing something and, and obtaining it, all of a sudden it's going to create happiness. And what we end up happening over and over again is when we have obtained it, we devalue it, and now we want something else. So what I learned is in gratitude is I'm pursuing my own personal gratification. Chip, I want to thank you for taking so much time today to help us understand your books. There are a lot of other things that we could talk about, including conscious capitalism, which is pretty much related to a lot of the topics that we've discussed today. Um, and in fact, I would encourage our listeners to uh, visit consciouscapitalism.org just as I tried to say it, ConsciousCapitalism.org, to learn more about this visionary movement of which Chip Conley is an ambassador. Um, let me ask you just one final question uh, to just to get your thoughts. We, we know that we have a generation of baby boomers who are aging past 50 and 60, who are now reinventing the post-50 life stage. Um, what are your 
aspirations for our generation in this third age that maybe we have? Well, I would love to retire the word retirement. <laughs> um, I, I, I think retirement is something you do before you die. And, and I, I'm a big believer in the idea that uh, we are here on Earth to have various I don't know. There's a, there's a, our purpose on earth is to continually be curious. And so I think the thing that's most interesting, uh, Peter, Peter Drucker, famous management theorist, uh, lived till age 95, partly because every couple of years he'd, he'd get curious about a new subject that had nothing to do with his work and he'd go out and study it and become an, an expert in it. And I think that's a really good sign for people later in life. Get curious, get interested in things that you didn't have a chance to actually focus on when you had the blinders on at age 42 um, and uh, you look at how you create a life and reimagine your life and reimagine your identity. We, the thing that's interesting about the world today is you can recast your identity more and more and, and not necessarily have the world look at you askew because more and more people go from being a CEO to being a kindergarten teacher because that's what they wanted to do when they grew up. Uh, and so what you want to do when you grow up is something that happens at age 60 or 80 or, you know, uh, I'm 51, turning 52 next month. I'm reimagining who I am uh, today. So I, I think that's really healthy because otherwise it, all it is is atrophy. Uh, you know, as you get later in life, you just atrophy because all you're doing is, you know, there's, a, there's just one thing you've always known and you're just getting less and less interested in it. I think that's a great answer, and, and that is the journey we're on, and I appreciate a important voice like yourself adding to that narrative because we do have to reinvent this life stage. We cannot allow ourselves to be marginalized or just withdraw, and that is a, a trap that I know a few have fallen into in my own personal sphere, and I encourage you to read Chip Conley's books, to take a look at Conscious Capitalism, to see some of his speeches on TED as well as other speeches that are on YouTube and become familiar with an individual who is self-evolving and moving on to new things, creating new opportunities for the rest of us in the process. So Chip, I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your thought-provoking and forceful ideas with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Brent. I really appreciate what you're doing in terms of spreading the, this kind of information around the world. I'll look forward to continuing to follow your career, Chip. Uh, I want to thank you, our listeners, for joining this show. Now, you can post your comments and questions on my Facebook page at facebook.com generation reinvention, or you can follow me and send direct messages on Twitter at Boomer Marketing. You can find out everything you need to know or want to know about Chip Conley by going to chipconley.com. So tell your friends, colleagues, and clients about a worldwide boomer revolution discussed here, and we call it Generation Reinvention. You've been listening to Generation Reinvention with your host, Brent Green. Visit Brent at his website at generationreinvention.com. And for archive shows, be sure to visit his show page here on the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is, have fun, make money.